Hi. Hey. So I'm at Vaughn's. What's it um, like out there? Um, people are streaming out in different kinds of masks. Thank you. Will you swing by the toilet paper aisle? <laughs> yes, yes, and I will get you some if they have any. Okay. I haven't been to a store in like seven <laughs> weeks, so. You want me to, you want to live vicariously through yes, me? Yes, what's it like out there? I am in the meat aisle. Do you guys have whole chickens? Not right now, thank you. Oh, so they're out of whole chickens. And there's a sign here that says I can only buy two packages of chicken. Two packages. Which is nothing I've ever seen before. It says due to high demand and to support all customers, we will be limiting the number of packages of fresh chicken products, two each per household. It's weird to go to grab chicken and have a sign like that. Yeah. To stare you in the face, but it's rationing. Right. I mean, that's not something that has happened a lot in recent history in the U.S. Yeah. And definitely makes you think twice about where your chicken is coming from. Why am I only allowed to get two of this? Right. Am I going down the right way? Oh, I'm going wrong, the wrong way down a one-way aisle. <laughs> you turn. Welcome to The Uncertain Hour. I'm Chrissy Clark, and we are here in your ears with something a little different than our normal show, a sort of pop-up bonus emergency podcast season, because, well, because if ever there were an uncertain hour, we've been living in it lately. There are so many moments right now that bring up the things we think about on this show, questions about wealth and poverty and inequality, like when you show up at the grocery store and find signs about rationing chicken and find yourself thinking about the slaughterhouse and the workers who make it possible to even have that chicken. In every delivery that comes to your door, every grocery store clerk in a face mask, every package of chicken that has to make its way to you from a slaughterhouse somewhere, there are reminders that there are some people taking risks that other people don't have to take. And there are some people who are going to come out of this crisis okay, and some people who are not. And there are reasons for that, built into our economy and into our policy. So in this pop-up season, we're going to ask the kinds of questions we like to ask on this show. How did we get here? What obscure moments in history or economic forces or policies made this happen? We're calling it A History of Now, and this is episode one, all about chicken. Or rather, the workers who bring us our chicken. That's Caitlin Esch, who was shopping vicariously with me at the grocery store over the phone. And she's also, of course, the senior producer of our show. Hello, Caitlin. Hey, Chrissy. And I asked Caitlin to be here because that sign I told you about warning me that I could only buy two packages of chicken, it's part of a much bigger story. John Tyson of Tyson Foods says the food supply chain is breaking. That means the price of meat is going up. It's a story that goes all the way back to the people at the very beginning of the supply chain that ultimately ends in my grocery cart. Thousands of workers have gotten sick from the coronavirus. And the kinds of jobs that they go to every day. And that's something that, Caitlin, you've been reporting on for a while now, since before the coronavirus began. Poultry workers. Now, 
those workers are getting sick. The fresh market division of the Tyson Chicken Processing Plant in Wilkesboro, it has been shut down until Tuesday because of the COVID-19 outbreak. A lot of chicken processing plants have become COVID hotspots. And one of the reasons a lot of people say that outbreaks are happening is because of working conditions at these plants. The crowding and the low wages and the lack of sick pay and the lack of protective gear. It's particularly hard for a lot of workers to stay home and to not go to work even if they're sick because of the low wages and the lack of sick pay. And one of the things that I've been really curious about is why it came to be that way. How did some of the country's most essential workers come to lack what seem like essential protections? And what does that feel like? And the time that you've spent reporting on the chicken industry in Mississippi helps answer those questions. Yeah, and that's where I was doing some reporting before the virus hit in central Mississippi. It's about 45 minutes east of Jackson, where a lot of the poultry processing plants are located. There's a Tyson plant, Pico, several Cook Foods facilities, and some smaller operators. It's a very rural area full of tiny towns that are practically supported by the chicken industry. And this area, central Mississippi, is getting hit pretty hard by the virus right now. Two of the counties with chicken plants have some of the highest concentration of COVID cases in the state. Rural Scott County, for example, has just 28,000 people, but it has the third highest number of COVID cases in Mississippi. The local health department confirms poultry workers are testing positive for COVID, but it won't give details about the scale of the outbreak or name the plants. Labor activists say workers are becoming infected and crowding hospitals, and at least one worker has died. So what are you hearing from workers? Well, let me introduce you to a couple of them. And I think it'll be helpful to start by hearing a bit about what they actually do to bring chicken to our tables. Take it, Caitlin. All right, so tell me your name. William McNeil. I met William McNeil on a stormy morning back in February, when things still felt normal in Mississippi. We met right after his shift. And what do you do? I catch chickens. He catches chickens, a job that's exactly what it sounds like. He goes out to farms that raise chickens for major poultry companies, usually in the middle of the night, heads into these huge chicken houses, and he grabs up live birds by hand, thousands of them in a single shift. And then the birds go to the processing plant. It was about eight in the morning, and William was still in his work clothes, blue jeans, sweatshirt. This is uh, my work gear. This is my steel-toed boots. Boots covered in chicken debris, feathers, poop. I like to wear steel-toed boots in the chicken house because keep my feet protected in case the cage do sit on it, or I have to kick one of the doors to make it close. William is 46 years old, lives in Raleigh, Mississippi. To catch a chicken, he scoops them up by the feet, flips them upside down, careful to avoid the spurs, which can impale you, and holds their legs between his fingers. He can hold up to 15 small birds at a time using both hands. The main hand that you put the chickens in, it disforms your knuckles. And all your knuckles will be disformed, messes your hands up. After seven years of this work, William's knuckles are swollen and bent. They'll swell up first, and once you catch for a while, they'll go back down uh, to normal size. But a lot of people, their hands never go down. Their hands always stay swollen out to big. You can tell they're a chicken catcher. Over the years, William has developed an elaborate hand care ritual involving vinegar and cornstarch to reduce the swelling and pain. Like I said, I got a remedy I use, and my hands don't swell that bad because I soak them in vinegar. (laughs) Vinegar take a lot of stuff away. 
Catching chickens is hard on the body and on the lungs. There's a lot of dust, and when chicken poop breaks down, it releases ammonia. Some catchers say the smell is so strong in the chicken houses, you almost pass out. This is a job nobody wants to do anymore because it's nasty, it's dirty, and it don't pay enough. The day I met him, William estimated he had made less than $50. It was a short shift. Tornadoes were touching down around the state. The weather was agitating the chickens. It was pretty, pretty easy shift today because we didn't have many chickens. Didn't have so many? No. But it took us uh, approximately probably five hours with uh, waiting on the trucks and different things. Every day, William's boss sends the crew out to different chicken houses. That day, the crew caught a house full of 23,000 small birds. The crew is paid a piece rate, not an hourly wage. So the chicken catchers try to catch birds as fast as they can. When he split the day's take with the rest of the crew, William got a little over $2 for every 1,000 birds they caught. So 23,000 chickens added up to about $47. That's less than $10 an hour, which doesn't include the time he spent riding in the company van to get to the chicken house. Some nights we go out, we may make $25. Some nights we may go out, we may make $115. By March, the pandemic hit, and I couldn't visit. I was practicing social distancing in California. So we talked on the phone. Do you have a few minutes to talk? Yeah, I got a few minutes. He wasn't catching chickens anymore. He was driving the van that picks up the catchers at their homes in the middle of the night and brings them to the farm and drives them home again at the end of the shift. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Just pulled up in the yard. William wasn't social distancing. He doesn't have that luxury. In late March, he was working in close quarters with a crew of about nine other people. They can't stay six feet away from each other. They weren't given any extra protective gear, no masks or hand sanitizer. It was basically business as usual. In early spring, as people were sheltering in place, working from home and avoiding grocery stores, what was most remarkable about William's situation was how little seemed to change for him. We are living our life the same, but we still are operating on our job. Um, Everyone that works in this house is still operating on this job. My stepson still go to work every day. My girlfriend still going to work every day. I'm still going to work every day. Only thing is my grandbaby's out of school, and that's it. (laughs) So everyone in William's house was still working. His girlfriend is a cook in a grocery store, His stepson works in an appliance store. William is considered an essential worker, so he's not laid off. He can't stay home and get unemployment. But William wants to work. Well, I feel like I'm very important to the the world, to the country. And I feel like uh, I need to try to uphold uh, my end if I can to make sure people eat because I want to make sure everybody have enough of food to go around in this country during this time, because this is a very critical time. But I feel like if I can go out there and help them, whether they keep food to stay alive, I feel like I ought to do it. Because um, I don't feel like the Lord will allow anything to happen to me 
as I uh, try to help the country keep food. Did you say you don't feel like the the Lord will hurt you if you're, or will allow anything to hurt you if you're? No, I, I feel I feel like the Lord will provide for me as I help people for people to eat. I feel like the Lord will, uh, you know, He's gonna take care of us. Yeah. But I believe that God takes care of his people. And um, we pray before we leave home going to work. And we just ask the Lord to just steer us through it. So you don't get sick days, right? No, we don't get no sick days. In the middle of a global pandemic, William was, of course, worried about getting sick and bringing that back to his family. He has elderly parents who he cares for and a grandchild who lives with him. And I have a lot of people that I be around daily. And them are some very important people in my life. And I don't want to get COVID and transport back home to some of my family. William's plan, if he does get sick, is to go to a university hospital about an hour away in Jackson that accepts uninsured people. And he can pay the bill back over time on a payment plan. So far, thankfully, William hasn't gotten sick. So how did we get here? How did it happen that during a pandemic, the workers in our food supply system, people we rely on to stay well, have no health insurance and no sick leave, and so little clout to demand protective gear? There are many reasons, and I want to talk about three of them. Subcontracting, the reliance on immigrant labor, sometimes undocumented labor, and lack of union power. Start with subcontracting. William works for a subcontractor hired by Cook Foods, a major poultry company. Cook Foods owns the chickens and the processing plant, but it subcontracts out the actual work of chicken catching to third-party businesses. That's who cuts William's paycheck. Many poultry companies used to hire catching crews directly, and they offered better pay and benefits. That all changed over the past 15 years or so, in part because it saves money. In court documents, companies say that they contract out because they can't find enough workers. But labor advocates say it's to skirt responsibility for employees. Working for a subcontractor, William doesn't get benefits. No vacation days, no health insurance, no sick days. But William doesn't blame the people he works for so much. He's mad at the company that owns the chickens he catches, Cook Foods. He sees Cook as ultimately responsible for his wages. I would want want Cook to feel like that we're important to them too. Because even as we make sure people got food, we're making sure that their company still run without going under. So I feel like that we ought to be appreciated for that. What kinds of things would show you that you're appreciated by the company? What kinds of things would you want? Uh, I would want to be recognized more and like for people to know that we still got catchers out there that work for some contractors that is going forth too, putting their life on the line to make sure people have food. Because that's just what we're doing with this virus. We're putting our life on the line make sure everybody got food in various places to eat. He was proud to play a critical role in the nation's food supply, but he wanted to be treated better. He wanted higher wages, hazard pay. 
I talked with William again in early May. He told me the contractor he works for has indicated he might start to get paid sick time temporarily during the crisis. And his employer has given them masks and hand sanitizer and Lysol. William says he drives with the windows open, sprays Lysol in the van. But as we said, it's not just subcontracting that makes poultry workers' lives precarious. There are other reasons too. Unlike other meat processors like beef or pork, chicken workers tend to not be unionized, and workers don't have a lot of clout. Many are undocumented. To dig into those reasons, it helps to get a little history. More on that after the break. To get a little history, I talked to Angela Stesey, an anthropologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Well, I lived and worked in Mississippi's poultry towns between 2004 and 2006. She spent several years doing academic research in the same area where William lives. She was also there organizing workers. She wrote a book about her time there called Scratching Out a Living, Latinos, Race, and Work in the Deep South. She says poultry came to the South in the 1930s and 40s. At first, the factories were staffed mostly by white women who earned less than men who were more likely to work in union shops. By the late 60s and early 70s, the chicken plants were desegregated, and the workforce became mostly African-American. Over the next 20 years, workers fought to organize for better wages and working conditions, like workers in meatpacking plants had successfully done in Midwestern cities decades before. They had some successes, but mostly union efforts failed. By the 90s, this effort was starting to gain some traction, and at the same time, the chicken industry was booming. Angela says the oldest poultry company in the state of Mississippi was a company called B.C. Rogers. B.C. Rogers was sort of confronting the reality that they were going to have to start negotiating uh, with their workers around working conditions and wages. So it was advantageous both because of sort of the labor pressures and because of the expanding industry to find um, a deeper and more expendable pool of workers. At first, Angela says the company brought in workers from surrounding counties, even as far away as Alabama. Until they figured out that there was this seemingly endless supply of Latin American immigrant workers that they could bring. The owner of B.C. Rogers came up with a plan to relocate immigrant workers from South Florida to rural Mississippi. The initiative even had a name. The Hispanic Project with a capital H and a capital P. They advertised jobs in a local paper in Miami. And set up a small office in a Cuban store. And started recruiting people to work at the chicken plants. And I think even they were surprised at how much interest there was. And they said within the first week, they had a Greyhound bus of workers. And they just kept bringing them. And for four years, they brought a Greyhound bus each week of workers for the plants. By the early 2000s, B.C. Rogers declared bankruptcy and Cook Foods took over. The Hispanic project officially ended, but immigrants from Argentina, Mexico, Peru, Guatemala, and other countries still made their way to rural Mississippi to work in the chicken plants. We reached out to many poultry companies over the past several months. None agreed to be interviewed. But in court documents, companies often say they cannot find enough workers, especially in rural areas where many chicken plants are located. They say there's a labor shortage, 
Angela has heard this too. But if you dig a little deeper, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in these towns and there are plenty of working poor folks who don't have a lot of other options. Labor shortage is sort of a a race-neutral term to talk about the existing available labor pool that was there in Mississippi at the time and their desire to, to recruit a more exploitable labor force. Exploitable as in immigrant workers, many of whom are undocumented. Angela says there's no social safety net for undocumented workers. They don't qualify for welfare or for food stamps. So even... Uh, if an undocumented worker would like to comply with shelter-in-place orders, or maybe they get sick and they really should stay home from work, I think they're under immense pressure to keep going, and there's no safety net at all for them. Some poultry companies have started to provide limited sick time for COVID exposure or offer short-term disability. It's worth noting, though, that because they often have more than 500 workers, they're exempt from new federal coronavirus requirements around paid sick leave, so they don't have to offer it. And some plants have point systems that penalize missing work. So even for workers who are documented, it can be hard to stay home from work. Which brings us to the second guy I want to tell you about. We'll call him Mike. He doesn't want to be identified because he's worried about losing his job. Mike works at the plant where the chickens William catches end up. It's a Mississippi processing plant owned by Cook Foods. We, we're taking a big risk to be there to do the job for them so they get all the money. but. If we get sick, they don't care. So what can you tell me about the situation at Cook Food right now? Is it business as usual or is it different? It is usual. I mean, it's the same. If nothing has been changed. But I think there's some changes going to be sometime next week. Mike's a mechanic at the plant. When I talked to him in late March as people were sheltering in place, he said nothing was really changing inside the plant. Hundreds of people were still working there, sometimes in close contact. Really close. On the line, for example, workers stand about a foot apart for many hours a day. I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of afraid because we are really close and uh, we're exposed too much because sometimes we are together and there's not like 10 people or it's more than like 100 or either I think 500 or, or a little bit over. So and then... I spoke to the manager the other day saying, like, they want us to keep working. They, they, and they will say, yes, we have to keep working because we have to provide food for the United States. But I was like, and we run out of masks. We don't have no mask, So we taking a big uh, 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 risk, you know, just working with that mask. Nobody has masks because they've been run out of masks. We are not protected by nothing. Mike says he does have health insurance, but he does not have paid sick leave. He says his supervisor told him if he gets sick, he won't lose his job, but he also won't get paid for it, which is a huge problem for Mike. Yeah, I have to keep working because I have to support my family. I have to support myself because I got two kids. They depend on me. If I start working, who's going to support my family? He earns between $400 and $500 a week and he sends as much as he can to his wife and kids. This is another part of Mike's story. 
80 undocumented immigrants were arrested yesterday in Mississippi. His family has been torn apart by the ice raids that happened last August in the poultry plants in rural Mississippi. Immigration and Customs Enforcement handcuffed hundreds of immigrant workers and loaded them onto buses as co-workers and family members watched in disbelief. <laughs> Governments, please put your heart. The massive raid involves several hundred federal ICE agents who surrounded the perimeters of at least seven food processing facilities to prevent people from leaving. Mike's wife was one of the 680 workers detained in the biggest immigration sweep in one state in U.S. history. She was working in Cook Foods under someone else's name. She decided to leave the country rather than face criminal charges for identity fraud. She took their two young kids with her. So now Mike is alone. He told me he goes home to an empty house. Yeah, it's sad because I don't have to spend time with nobody like I used to have with my daughter. Like I would spend time with her whenever I get home. Now, I'll just get into my room and it's boring because, and then I start missing her because I don't see her playing around like she used to. So yeah, my life has been changed and it is not the same as, as it was before. Conditions have always been tough in poultry plants. It's been calculated that workers make up to 60,000 repetitive motions per shift, the same cutting motion again and again and again. The coronavirus has made working in the plants even more dangerous. The CDC issued guidance for how meat and poultry companies should protect workers in late April. The National Chicken Council says its members are strictly adhering to the guidelines. And it says they've taken measures to protect workers, like staggering break times, distancing workers, providing masks, and putting up plexiglass barriers between workers. But it's worth noting the guidelines are voluntary, they're tough to monitor, and they're not enforced. Meatpacking unions are pushing for more protections at work, but most poultry workers aren't represented by unions. Debbie Berkowitz is the former OSHA chief of staff under the Obama administration. Now she's the safety and health program director at the National Employment Law Project. The beef and pork plants have a long history of worker activism and very strong unions in beef and pork. And uh, I think they were able to bring attention to what was going on. She says they've been getting less media attention than beef and pork workers, but chicken plant workers are even more vulnerable. Pork and beef plants are often located in mid-sized cities. 60 to 70 percent of the meat we consume comes from union shops, whereas poultry plants are often in the rural South. About 70 percent of them are non-union. Workers are terrified of speaking out. They're terrified of calling OSHA. And even if they did call OSHA, Debbie says OSHA doesn't have any specific standards requiring protections for COVID-19. They have standards that require protection for certain chemicals in the workplace or for dangerous equipment, but there is no OSHA requirement that workers have to be six feet apart and social distance. There's no OSHA requirement that workers should be given some kind of mask uh, that they have to work in so that they aren't spreading the disease in the workplace. There is no requirement that hand sanitizers be spread throughout the workplace. I mean, OSHA could require all of this. OSHA has the power to require stronger protections. It's issued emergency standards in the past, 
but it's not using that power. So safety guidance that's voluntary, a lack of legal protections for workers, weak union organizing, subcontracting. These are some of the factors at play in chicken plants, and they create this reality where conditions are ripe for spreading the virus. And some people might go to work even when they're not feeling well because they can't afford to stay home. In many ways, it's those conditions that are the broken link in our food supply chain. Illness can easily spread, plants shut down, and some of us are finding signs in our grocery stores saying you can only buy two packages of chicken. But it's not just poultry workers who are facing this dilemma of paycheck versus safety. It's true for lots of industries where so-called essential workers work. Amazon warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, healthcare workers. If you have low wages, no sick pay, and you can't collect unemployment because you're not laid off. Because um, we have to tell them that we're able to come back to work. Because if we don't, they will. Um, that's justification right there. They don't have to pay unemployment at all. So... It's a choice, but it's really not a choice. More about that coming up soon. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. We'll be back next week with more. And send us your questions. We'll look into them if we can. Tweet them to me. I'm at Christiania Clark. Good luck spelling that. There's a K and three I's. Or you can email us. The address is uncertainhour at marketplace.org. Our producers are Peter Balanon-Rosen, Chris Julin, and Caitlin Esch. Our editor, Catherine Winter. Our intern, Daniel Martinez. Our engineer is Daniel Ramirez. Our digital team includes Tony Wagner, Erica Phillips, and Ben Hefcoat. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. 